podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of our new show, Famous Fans. I'm Jay Pearce, and as always, Mick Moran is with me as well. Uh, we were joined uh, by Soul Sally Cruz Harvey on the last episode, which you should all go and check out. But today's show, we have another very, very special guest. He started his career on the radio station London Underground. He formed part of the dream team that were vital in bringing UK Garage to the mainstream and to Radio 1 at the start of the century. As part of the team, they won the pre- prestigious Sony Award in their first year. But three gold-selling compilations later and DJ residencies in the UK, Ibiza and Ayanapa, under his belt, it was no surprise that he found himself back on UK shores as host of the Weekend Breakfast Show on Radio 1. But it was moved to Radio 5 Live and hosting 606, where he combined his passion for football with his career. Interviewing various personalities from the world of football, he's been on Strictly, The Weakest Link, Question of Sport, he's one mastermind, and he's currently one of the hosts of Premier League TV. But probably most impressive of all is that he had the biggest balls to play. You'll never walk alone at Old Trafford during the 2015 Super League Grand Final. So please welcome to This Is Your Life. I mean, famous fans. It's uh, DJ Spoonie. Welcome, mate. <laughs> nice one. Thanks for having me, Jay. No worries, buddy. Listen, mate, honestly, the pleasure is all ours. But listen, mate, we'll, we'll start right at the beginning. It's the best place to start, as always, mate. Um, you were born in Hackney, and I assumed you grew up there as well. So at what point yeah. did you start supporting Liverpool? Was there a particular moment that you knew, yeah, they're my team? You know what? I, I, it, it was a weird one, because even though we were in Hackney, and I wasn't too far from the old Highbury Stadium. When I say too far, um, when they played on a Saturday, if and when they scored, I could hear you could hear the cheer from my house. But at the time, they were just quite, I don't know, a little bit boring, and... Just a, a lot of people I grew up with, they either supported Arsenal because we lived near Arsenal, or um, or Liverpool, and I just went the Liverpool way. And I, you know, I was the eldest um, eldest son, um, didn't grow up with my dad, so it wasn't like I was influenced by anyone as such. And I just picked my team, and my team happened to be Liverpool. I think it actually coincided um, largely with Kenny Dalglish signing in 1977. So that was the you know, that was the thing. Um, liked his smile, liked how he played. And, and then I became a Liverpool supporter and really didn't put that much thought into it. I loved playing football and that just was the team that I picked. Yeah, it makes, makes perfect sense. I, mean, I think a lot of people, obviously, the younger they are, they, they see a player and they latch onto his club and that's absolutely fair enough. I mean, you know, you're growing up in the 70s and 80s, a Liverpool fan, mate, it, it must have felt incredible. You know, similar to the feeling we've all got now, which is great, and of the current squad, but... What are your best memories of that period growing up as a Liverpool fan? You, you know, it's one of those things where we were just winning, winning, winning. You never ever think there's going to be a time when when you're not winning. And you know, we were doing we were doing European Cup and League Championship doubles back to back years. Um, you know, winning it three out of four and four out of five. Um, and it was a proud time to to, to be a Liverpool fan. Um, like I said, we were either we were always they're all thereabouts. Um, yeah. And you just don't imagine a time and a period where you're not going to be competing or winning major honours. So you could imagine me walking around the playground, um, you know, just giving it Love even it. more so. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, it was a good time. It, really, it definitely was a good time, a great time to be a Liverpool fan. Who was your heroes at the time then, mate? Who was you looking up to? Obviously, you said Kenny, but who else? Yeah, I, I think at the beginning, of course, it, it was Kenny Dalglish. Um, I thought Graham Soonis was an unbelievable player as well. Um, I used to love the way that Alan Hansen played as a defender because he was really cultured. And, he, you know, he was cultured at a time when, uh, you know, I shouldn't put him in the... I'm not saying he's, he was a Beckenbauer of, uh, by any stretch of the imagination yeah. in that way, but he played he played the game of football. But what was most impressive about that Liverpool team and those Liverpool teams around that that period, even though when I say Graham Souness and, and Kenny Dalglish, who I think were genuine world-class players at that time, it was largely a brilliant team made up of not great individuals, just they had an unbelievable work ethic as a unit. And in many ways, and I know you now might talk about 
Salah and Mane and Van Dijk and Allison to a degree. But when you look around it, the rest are players, good players, very good players. And maybe Thiago, you know, Thiago is like the first time we signed a genuine world-class player. Um, the rest, we've become a world-class team yeah. because of how the team have played together. And I think that's a similarity to, to the Liverpool team of old. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. You said the same thing, Mick, didn't you, when we signed Thiago in one of the shows? It was genuinely the, the first time where we've had a world-class player go, yeah, I'm choosing Liverpool rather than what it's been in the past where people have sort of used as a as a stopgap type thing, whereas it's completely changed now, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it's when you compare, like when you look at FSG's model, it's, it's always between, they want to stand between 23 and 27 because they want to try and recoup as much of that money as they can from potential players that they sign and winning the Premier League, winning the Champions League the year before, then winning the Premier League, then to sign a 29-year-old Thiago who's one of the top five midfielders in the world. It was a it was straying away from, like I said, the FSG's model, but it was a statement of intent, I thought, and it's like, well, we've gone out and signed this fella. I mean, it only cost us maybe 25 million, which is an absolute sniff. Yeah. But it was, it was like, this is where we're up to and this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to do going forward with this strength and depth. I think that, you know, when you look at business models, the, the, the business model was right for the time considering where we were. And I think as times yeah. change, things need to change. So we now shop in different markets because we have different requirements. And that's why Tiago for me was a, was a fantastic signing. Just like when we signed Andrew Robertson, it was the right signing for the right time because we're in a position where we could and should have been developing. But being able to go and buy a player of Thiago's quality to maintain our current state of quo. Status quo means means that that uh, business model needs to change and adjust to where you find yourself. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely spot on. And it's it's a view that not a lot of people have heard in terms of the model because obviously everyone wants to keep with what FSG have been doing. So you're absolutely spot on. Um, just going back to obviously towards the late eighties and then we get into the nineties, mate, which obviously was an up and down period for. Liverpool but obviously from mine and Mick's perspective I'm in my mid-30s Mick's in his early 30s so respectively we didn't feel sort of the drop-off as much as as what you did probably when because we were too young to experience the highs of the 80s but how hard for you was it in the 90s watching Liverpool sort of decline a little bit I mean we still had some good moments but they're not winning and, and like you said before you know winning three out of four or four out of five was probably difficult to take. Yeah, it was. And, you know, I think the, the tragedy of, of Heysel, um, you know, at the time we didn't realise how much that would have affected us because it was almost as though we turned up in Europe and we were, yeah. the, we were the boys, we were the big boy in the playground. And that sort of, that took a little bit away from us. I suspect that it meant that, you know, the kind of players that we may or may not have attracted, which is slightly different to now in that I think the game is a lot more global. But once we entered into the 90s, you know, the squad kind of got old together. Other teams go away and strengthen. The rise of the guys from down the East Lanks Road came up and then they dominated. Even though they didn't dominate internationally in the way that we did, they definitely yeah. did domestically. And it was as though we could not break, um, we couldn't break that stranglehold. And every time we got close, it just wasn't quite close enough. Um yeah. And yes, and and it was it was difficult because, like you say, I you know I I lived through the glory days. I knew what it was like to to lose what we had. Where you guys, fortunately, you know, depending on how you look at it, you didn't yeah. have that. But then I also had the enjoyment of walking into the playground most Mondays, laughing at people, which is what I did. Which is what I did. Yeah, it was uh, the exact opposite for me and you, Mick, wasn't it? We just get laughed at every week. Oh. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a good time, and I, th I don't. It's a, it's difficult to like if you had the magic ability to have a preference. I don't know what I'd have. It. I don't know if I'd have your spoonie where I've had the glory days and then the decline and then back up again that roller coaster ride. Or I think I'd probably I'd probably stick with what I've got now and not feel any <laughs> any success, and then get, and then gradually go up two thousand and one, get a few trophies two thousand and five, and then finally hit the, the <laughs> yeah. two thousand five, two thousand seventeen, eighteen. I mean, what I can say is that the wait um, for this next league title and, you know, we've had, you know, that 2000, 2001 when we won all of the trophies, that was an amazing period, but not quite the league. 
you know, when we went close with Rafa in 2009, we went close with Brendan again, quite close. But that period, you know, two years, three years into Jurgen's reign, where we've gone, you know, Champions League final, we've gone 97 points and come second. We've gone Champions League final, won it. The next year we go and win the league. It Winning the league then becomes a little bit sweeter when you've waited so long for it. I feel like you've been walking in the desert with no water and then that <laughs> first sip is glorious. Yeah, absolutely right, it is. Uh, but we're going to come on to that in a little bit uh, detail in a bit, mate. So I'm glad you've just given us a little taste of how you feel about that because I've got a cracking question coming up for you. Um, but obviously just... Because obviously growing up in the 90s, we all had our heroes. I mean, for me, it was... It, Robbie Fowler will always be my Liverpool hero. Because like you said, you watched Kenny and latched onto him. I saw Robbie Fowler and that was it for me. And I know uh, Mick feels the same about that as well. But we had Steve McManaman, Jason McAteer, Jamie Redknapp, absolute legends of the club. Um, and then Patrick Berger comes in. And then towards the end of the decade, we get Caro, we get Stevie, we get Michael Owen. And it always felt we were on the cusp of winning something, wasn't it? And it always felt like Roy Evans we didn't just get there in 97. And we, you know, winning the League Cup was great. Winning the FA Cup in 92 as well. But it did always feel like we were on the cusp of something, wasn't it? Yeah, we were. I mean, the, the other player that I have to mention, um, and he joined us, you know, just after this period. And there's no doubt that this might have affected his decision um, when we signed for £900,000 from Watford, John Barnes. Of and, course. You know, being being a black man, seeing a black man wearing your team colours. Um, yeah. I used to run around the playground. You know, it was like Jonathan Barnes when we played around the, around <laughs> the flats. Um, <laughs> because Love it... it, 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 it this is that was the power of of a role model, and mm. it's funny in some ways that football it, it, it exists almost in a parallel universe. That I could run around saying uh, Dalglish if I wanted or Sunis, but to have um, and I did. Let's just let's yeah. just make Put, that, that in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to have um, to have not just a black player, but one of the greatest players in the career, one of the greatest. Uh, black play players that have ever worn the shirt of Liverpool, it did mean something special. And, you know, we were miles away, miles away. I grew up supporting a team that are hundreds of miles away from, from where I live. So having that that connection was was even greater. Um, so, yeah, it, that, that those were, you know, those were special times. And like you said, we went close and just wasn't quite, quite close enough. Um, and for someone who was used to crossing a line and crossing the line with games to spare and aplomb, it was yeah. a bit of pill to swallow, um, like I said. Um, but yeah, we got there. We got there in the end. And now I see, and I'm fortunate enough to remember the times, the glory times, and be able to compare, you know, what's going on now under Jurgen Klopp to what happened under Kenny Dalglish and, uh, you know, and, and Bob Paisley. I remember Bob being in charge. Yeah, and I, I feel like it is sort of like the second coming. Uh, at the minute for, for either, you know, Shankly or Bob Paisley because, you know, they always said that Shankly made the people happy. And I think Klopp's doing the exact same thing now, isn't he? I, I think so. I, I You know, even when, you know, even when we, we didn't win the league, he made us believe. And I think there's a psychological element in the changing room that you come in. And you, do you remember when he first joined that there were so many players kept breaking down with, soft yeah. tissue injuries and everyone's like, oh, they can't handle it the way he wants to play. And it just yeah. was getting everybody used to what he wanted. And what success does, even though no one will double guess his methods in training, what happens is you're not sure. And what's this guy doing? We've never done this before. And then you win and you go, ah, oh, okay. And then you win again and you go, ah. Oh. So I, I think everyone started buying into what he was doing, they were understanding his methods. You know, we, we got to the uh, UEFA Cup final. Yeah, All right, we didn't. We, we we didn't win that one, and people were like oh, it's because of this and because of that. But I was thinking, wow, this really could be a, a taste of things to come. And if you look at the team that we that we had out, we actually had no right to be in any European final. But such is such is as a fan managing your expectations and being a football fan, they don't always go. Hand in hand, <laughs> do you know what I mean? This, this, we, this we, is true. We don't this have to true. be reasonable. So when when I look at it from that perspective, it ends up being that you know we are in a fantastic place, and I'm not going to say I don't see it ever ending, but I think we can enjoy this period for a little bit longer because 
we are absolutely the team to beat. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, mate. And you've just touched on there about getting to finals and not having, you know, we're not having no right to be there and stuff like that. Um, but I want to talk 2005 with you and the miracle of Istanbul. And um, I remember uh, getting my tape recorder out, you know, for those that are watching VHS tapes, you just have to record things on VHS, um, shoving it in, Sky One. Uh, and there was a little documentary called One Night in May, which obviously you were heavily featured in. And one of the quotes that I always remember uh, from yourself, and I haven't watched it recently, just always imprinted memories, it was a whole mission getting to Turkey. So I would love for you now just to share your, your memories of, you know, we got to the final and then what was your journey like getting, getting to Istanbul and the, the Ataturk? So this, so this is the thing, right, that I, I've often taken stick from Liverpool fans as well about, ah, uh, you know, you southern, you know, not real fans, oh, not real fans. Yeah. And what they, what they don't understand is that actually being a Liverpool fan when you live 250 miles away is actually harder than being a Liverpool fan within a stone's throw of the yeah. stadium. Because what happened on uh, when we got to the Champions League final is that there weren't tickets with flights available for anyone that was in the south. So mm. we then had to go on an absolute mission and then the, the tour company would only wait until there was a massive demand before we could get a flight. So we ended up driving to, uh, we flew out of Luton over to Turkey and it was like one flight. So I think we got there at 11, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock in the morning. And that was it. There was no hotel. We were in, you know, in the square. Um, I can't, it begins with a T. What was it called? Taksim Square. Taksim yeah. Square. Um, I mean, it was a fantastic day, uh, brilliant atmosphere. But then it was like, well, we're heading over to the stadium now. And this might have been, I don't know, six o'clock. Uh, bearing in mind they were an hour forward. God, yeah. This is really early. But the drive sent, seemed to go on for ages. And then we hit this, we just hit traffic. And I, I remember on the, you know, on the bus going over, number one is Carragher. <laughs> number two is Carragher. We all dream of a team. And this went up to like 28 or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? um, but we we got and we can see, we could see the stadium in the distance. Um, and it was all lit up. And it was like, right what we're doing and everyone decided what well, we're getting off this bus and it, there was like a massive expanse of land where it, it seemed like it wasn't quite developed and the stadium was just stuck almost like in a in a desert and everyone you, and when you looked around you could just see thousands of thousands of Liverpool fans just walking across this bit of grass and I tell you it felt I, I felt like I was I felt like I was going to battle and I looked around yeah. and I felt like we were we were an army in a sense of just going across and we're going to take over that stadium. Um, and that was part of the journey. I mean, obviously the game, I don't have to talk about the game. Um, it was a long day. It was emotional. After the game, we were, we were sent to an area, uh, to the airport. So we left the stadium, went straight to the airport, but it wouldn't let us in the airport. So there's a big, massive, massive marquee one of the biggest marquees that I've ever seen. And bearing in mind, I think I got up that morning at four or five o'clock, all of the excitement, I just yeah. hit a brick wall. And I was like, I, 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 need to, I need to lie down. My head was hurting, you know, the euphoria of winning and winning in such circumstances yeah. as well. So I came, out of, I came out of the marquee and was thinking, I need to, I need to lie down. And now we're <laughs> in, the, in the middle of, it was like being homeless to a degree. Anyway, I found this really quiet spot behind the marquee, under a bush. I had my rucksack on. I pulled my hood up and I dozed off. And I don't know how long I was, I don't know how long I was sleeping for, but I fell into a very deep sleep and then woke up in a panic. And when I woke up, I, I, I didn't know where I was. And you know, that, that happens. Yeah. I had no idea where I was. And I was outside and I could hear sort of murmuring of noise from inside the marquee and I was next to a bush and then the evening started to unravel and I'm saying it, you know, it felt like this was happening over two or three minutes, but it was over 15 seconds or something. And then I realised that we just won the Champions League and I jumped up and now I was jumping up and down on my own outside, outside, this, um, outside this marquee and then I mean, getting home, anyone that went to that game, they'll tell you 
we were literally jumping on any plane that we could get to come back to the UK because it was absolute carnage and chaos in the airport. So I ended up getting on a flight that was not mine to Gatwick or something like that. And I was meant to be getting on a Luton flight. And I just said, any any flight that's going back to the UK, I'm going to get on and I'm just going to get someone to come and pick me up. But um, again, I, I think, you know, the journey was a story within itself. But what a story. Yeah. That's it, mate, and that's because I knew you'd have a, a special story after watching that documentary. I thought, like I said, everybody's different. Some people did it for five days, seven days. You did it within a 24-hour period, and like I said, imagine if we'd lost. It would have been like one of the worst trips ever, but every second of that, being tired and falling asleep, and it was just worth it, wasn't it? So here's the thing, that when we... Um, I would have loved to have stayed longer, but I was doing Radio 1 at the time, so I was doing the, the weekend breakfast show, and... The game was on uh, Wednesday night as the Champions League games were then. Mm. So I got back sort of Thursday afternoon. I, get, I tell you this, Saturday morning when I went on air, I still had a sore throat. My throat was still <laughs> hoarse from singing. Just uh, just unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. That's it. I mean, Mick, we look back at that squad, don't we, from time to time when we're doing shows and we just go, how the frick did we win that? Yeah, I think it's just one of those things. It's cut. Kind of... If you link it to something recently, maybe the Villa game, where it's just like the stars aligned and it, you look back, like you say, you look back at the squad, Vladimir, Smitzer, and just people like that, where you think they should never be winning the European Cup when they were so integral to it in the end with that, that goal that he scored. And it's just stuff like that where you think it was just meant to be. And like being 3-0 down is probably the best team in the, in, yeah. in the world at the moment and the whole journey coming back and the fans singing at half-time and... It was just one of those moments, and I think we deserved it under Rafa, and I think it will go down and fall for us probably the best European Cup final ever. Absolutely, mate. And then when you look, when you look like two years later, screen, and we got to Athens, and we thought you know history was going to repeat itself, and you know on paper we probably had a better team. Uh, the, the the team selection could have been better. Um, I think we all were agreed on that, and I think someone tweeted a, a while ago when it was like the Istanbul anniversary that they preferred if the team had won in all seven. Than all five because there were like the likes of Daniel Lager and Crouchy and Cal and Rayner would have got European uh, winners medals and I can see where they're coming from with that as well but again Athens was a, was was a tough watch wasn't it? Yeah, Athens. There was something again. I went to that final, getting into the stadium. People without tickets were getting in. People with tickets couldn't get in. You know, and and I hate to say it, but it was being at that game. Um, it was another tragedy waiting to happen yeah. on, the, on the terraces because it was so so poorly handled. And I know that UEFA are under pressure to make the game more global and not just leave it in the hands of the big four, five or six nations. But there's a reason, part of the reason is that they have the infrastructure to, to deal with games of this magnitude. Um, and, you know, that's most probably where our problems, problems started. Like you say, I think we had the team to win that game. I thought we were a better team than we were in 05. I thought they weren't as good as they were in 05. And it was one of those. And really, I, I, I get the argument that for legacy, it would have been better to win it in 07 than 05. But the, the fashion that we won it in 05, yeah. it, it was a movie. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, a blockbuster <laughs> movie. It could. You, if you roll that down as a movie, you'd be like, no, that had never happened. Which Absolutely. is, again, it's something that you said. I remember on that document, you said that, and it's like, yeah, it's incredible, mate. But, I mean, after the, the, that period of, of Istanbul, Rafa was building an incredible team. And, you know, we, we can talk all day about Carragher and Ipia and the spine with Alonso and the, the greatest midfield. But um, I think I just want to touch on uh, Fernando Torres and, and what he brought to the side because there's a fantastic documentary on Amazon at the minute about it his career and stuff and it's quite eye-opening because obviously the, the reasons why it left is people still stings for a little for a lot of people but it, it is an eye-opening documentary it tells a different side of the story but you know Fernando Torres mate what, a, what an addition he was we were so lucky to have him at the time wasn't we yeah and again he was another one of those players that we signed that wasn't world class he was a very good player but whilst he was with us he started to display absolute world-class tendencies. And I, and I don't want to take any credit away from him, but that period, that couple of years with him and Steven Gerrard, when one plus one equaled three, they were <laughs> unbelievable together. They were 
telepathic. They were brilliant. They were fantastic. Stephen, you know, playing as a as a ten almost. Um, but Fernando Torres just had that. I don't know. He could play up front on his own and occupy two centre halves yeah. as Rio Ferdinand and Nemanja Vidic absolutely know um, oh too well that he he could just handle himself. You know, even his first game against uh, John Terry, you know, what he'd done to Ivanovic. No one did that to Ivanovic ever, but he didn't care. He was, he was rugged. He was raw. You know, he wasn't cultured and slick in the way that Firmino is or Salah. He was, in many ways, he was like a throwback British centre forward. He was quite a hustling, bustling kind of, you know, he wasn't a, a dribbler, but he would push it and then just move people out of the way. Um, yeah. But boy, could he finish. And like I said, the combination of him and Steven Gerrard. And we then just started to have, you know, when you look at the back, um, you know, Rainer in goal and, you know, Mascherano and Alonso and Gerrard. And you go, that spine is unbelievable. You know, that yeah. spine, in many ways, you start getting into the conversation. You say, well, was that spine as good as the spine that we have now? All right, you might put Virgil mm-hmm. in that team. But Steven Gerrard is going to be in any team every day. Um, yeah. We absolutely would be delighted if we... We wouldn't mind if we had Pepe Reina. You're not going to definitely mind if you had Fernando Torres, Mascherano or Xavi Alonso. So, you know, what we signed with Thiago, it's yeah. it's a version of Alonso. And we've not had that kind of player since. Spot on. Mick, you said the exact same thing, didn't you? Uh, about having Thiago now is like the missing piece that we've had. Uh, since Alonso left in 2009, which sadly it wasn't Akulani that was going to replace him, and it hasn't been since, has it? Yeah, we had we've had a few false dawns, haven't we, with like the likes of Akulani? But yeah, going back to Torres, just what 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 a player! Like in those four years, he's like when he left, he absolutely broke me off. Like it was just yeah. like, one of those moments where like an ex cheats on you. It's like you absolute bastard. It's one of those moments, wasn't it? You just think it. Because I'm, 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 there, son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, that's what it was like, wasn't it? Because he was that good, and he, he came in at a moment where we were, where we were good, and he just raised everyone's spirits. Like the the song we created for him, the the atmosphere in the grounds. It, it was just it, it was just one of those moments. Like I touched on it before, like with the stars aligned. That was just a moment where a, a perfect player and a perfect club just clicked together, and it just and magic was waiting to happen. And, and then in those four years, at least for the first three years, he was absolutely. Best sense forward in the world by a long shot. Yeah, definitely, mate. But honestly, mate, you need to watch that documentary, mate. And because I, I oh, need to have right. another conversation with you about it. It's incredible, mate. Um, but I mean, if we look at the time of recording this, obviously, Spoonie, it's um, the Derby's this weekend. And uh, it falls on the same day, Mr. Statman Mick, doesn't it? Was What is it, the 17th of October 2010? What happened then? Yeah, they, they beat us at Goodison 2-0. I think it was Kale yeah. and um, Arteta, wasn't it, back then, 10 years ago. Yeah, so it is a bit weird the way it fell. It is. Well, yeah, exactly. And I just the reason why I mention it is obviously because at the time in 2010 it was a it was a big struggle for us. Um, and I, Spoonie, I just want to get your opinion on we because we touched earlier on the decline of the club in the sort of the 90s, but this was this was something else, wasn't it? In, in 2010 and 2011. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it it was bad times and troubled times, and you see it happen to, you know, I've seen it happen recently. Manchester United seem like they're in it. You know, Arsenal have been in that decline for a while, but when it's when it's your own team, it hits it hits harder, and you're going. Yeah. You know, what are we doing? We we don't seem to be making coherent decisions. We're panicking. We don't seem to be signing the players with the right profiles. The managers we're appointing, and and I and I don't want to ever be disrespectful to any manager because I truly believe they come in and they do their absolute yeah. best. But it, it does seem as though when you watch other clubs from the outside. You think, well, that, that's just panic. What, what is the, what is the rhyme and the reason there? And I, I think with us that there were a couple of times when that happened, um, and that was around that, around that period, as well. Um, yeah, I don't know what, what, <laughs> what more you can say without being, uh, that's it. you know, disparaging about it. But it just wasn't a great time for us, considering that not too long before that we actually should have won the Premier League, and, and we yeah. didn't, um, which would have kicked us and put us into a different direction and um you know that's it's that one when you miss your junction on the motorway and the, the next turning is like 10 15 miles away and you've got yeah. to go 15 miles one way and come 15 miles back and that's that's kind of like what it felt I like. love that I love that mate it's, it's spot on absolutely spot on like you said you don't want to be I mean the thing is about there's a lot of off the field 
stuff that was going on. And, it, you know, that's no disrespect to anybody who was working at the club at Melwood and on the pitch because at the end of the day, this stuff like that does affect it. But you've got to, the way we are now, you've got to go through those times to appreciate what we've got now. And ironically, again, like we said, the derbies this weekend, it's at Goodison. And the last time there was like a euphoric of a new manager coming in, Brendan Rodgers, unfortunately, was uh, had left Liverpool after Goodison. Yeah. After the after the derby game, obviously yeah. in 2015, yeah. and then we had uh, uh, a very uh, certain German arrive from the Black Forest, um, and I just want to say, mate, how excited was you when your new clock was getting the job? So the the, the interesting thing about that, I, I work quite a lot with uh, Don Hutchison, um, oh, yeah. the, the Liverpool legend, and he, through his work of, of co-commentary, he does a lot of German football, and he said, look, this. This guy is this guy is special. Um, he has uh, he's like the perfect mix for Liverpool. Um, the way that he was at Dortmund, the, and the, more importantly, the position that Liverpool find themselves in now, because we weren't flush with money, but he had an ability to challenge the status quo, which we had to do when he came in, because we weren't one of the top clubs, not even in let alone Europe, but even in our own domestic competition. So. Uh, Don was like, this guy is this guy is very very good, and you know from then you know finished eight. All right, he didn't he, he didn't start the season in charge, but it just got better and better and better, and you can see that there was a plan um, yeah. that he was trying to execute. And you know, in some ways, I do feel, and I know there's a, a lot of fans that don't agree, but I I think that in many ways, even though Brendan Rodgers wasn't successful. He had me believing that actually we could do this again. And like I said earlier, I think there's a psychological element to sport that you have to get close enough to believe that you can do it to go ahead and do it. If you're always winning, so, you know, the Liverpool teams of the 70s and 80s and Manchester United of, of the of the 90s and, and Chelsea for various parts uh, since the turn of the millennium, they know what it's like to go and win because they won it the year before or the year before that. But when you are coming out of the wilderness, you need a series of things. You need that perfect storm. You need those cogs to line up so you can really start believing that we can do this. And even though Jurgen Klopp deserves all of the credit, as a football fan, that year when we nearly done it under Brendan Rodgers was the first time in a long time that I thought, are we, are, you know what, can we do it now? Yeah. Can we do it now? And if I'm thinking that, I'm sure the players were. Yeah, oh, mate, you couldn't have said it any better. You know what I mean? I think, Mick, you said that the moment for you when this Liverpool side started to turn in 17-18 is, is what Spoonies just said as well, where you started to believe again that we're not just fighting for fourth anymore. We're going to grow every year, aren't we? Yeah, I think, like, like Spoonies said before, like the... It was the gradual process, like when you look back to those moments you just mentioned, the Brendan Rodgers nearly moments, and then the Jurgen Klopp coming in, the Europe, getting to the UEFA Cup final and not getting not getting the win there, losing in the Champions League final, then winning the Champions League. It's those little steps, and it's steps that we've made in the past, and like Spoonie said, it's like missing the junction, and then you have to come back 20 miles, but it's we've been doing it, but we've been missing small junctions, and then going to the next roundabout and coming back around again. So yeah. it's 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 that's what we've been able to do, and that's why Jurgen Klopp is another for me. It's like another perfect match for for Liverpool. He just gets the club, he gets the city, and he he works on a budget that's absolutely minuscule compared to other clubs. Like the like you look at the players he signed for Dortmund, like Lewandowski and Matt Hummels and Piszczek and Aubameyang and Gundogan, and you think these are they're all now in the top echelons of of any football in the world, and he signed them for peanuts, and he's he's done that for. Liverpool with Andrew Robertson and other players like Sadio Mane. I mean, 34 million, but there was question marks at the time. And now he's best left winger in the world by a long way. And it's like stuff like that that you can see players and how good they're going to be in the future. And I think that that type of value is just, you can't put money on it. No, it's true. And Spoonie, uh, Mick's just made a really good point there about the, the level of signings that he makes and stuff. There's not, you know, you look at all the signings that Klopp's made, it's hard to pick any of them that have been what people would call a failure, really, isn't it? He's, every one of them sort of... I mean, Michael Gruwich was his first signing in that yeah. January, January transfer, and he's obviously still technically at the club, so obviously he still sees something in him. And obviously we know about 
the you know Loris Carius with the unfortunate incident that he's he, he suffered and he's again he's still at the club and stuff like that. It's very rare that a player is is in and he goes, you know what, that didn't work out. See you later, isn't it? He, he does well with transfers. Yeah, it's a major part of the success of of any manager. Their um, their success in the transfer market. I think Jurgen Klopp, the ones that he's got right, he's got unbelievably right. The ones that haven't been as right, well, they're still there or thereabouts because even Marco Gurich, you know, we saw him play in the League Cup and he, he, yeah. he effectively put in, all right, other than the hat-trick and Curtis Jones scoring, but he, he was one of, of our best performers across the, across the two, uh, two matches. So it's not as though he isn't and wasn't a good player, but when you look at the players that he's trying to get in front of who hit, who have hit another level and maintain their levels. And I talk about Jordan Henderson of maintaining such high levels and high standards. Yeah. Uh, Gina Wijnaldum has come in and done unbelievably well and upped his own ratings and levels. Uh, Fabino came in, it was a slow start, but now he's, he's fantastic. We then go and sign a world-class midfielder in Thiago. These are the players that, um, that Grish is trying to break in, in front of. But when you look on paper, the money that Liverpool have paid for the players, if they were to go back on the market tomorrow, then, you know, I would turn around and go, which player in Liverpool's squad has not increased in value like considerably? Um, what we paid for, I, I think what we paid for Mane and Salah, you, would, you wouldn't sell for less than four and a half, at least four times what we paid for them. Spot Virgil on. van Dijk has most probably doubled in value and he was the world's most expensive uh, defender. Alisson's price, he was the most expensive goalkeeper in the world until a couple of weeks, but <laughs> his value has gone up. Trent was a youth team player. How much would he be worth now? Andrew Robertson, again, you yeah. want to get no change out of £78 million pound for, a, for a fullback and the list goes on. So even when you add in... Um, players like Karius and Grich, which is, I think is hard to put into that conversation because he's still a very good player. Yeah. Jurgen Klopp and uh, Michael Edwards. And we can't, in this instance, it needs to be said, just like I said before when I mentioned Torres and Gerrard, our transfer record, we cannot speak about Jurgen Klopp without speaking about Michael Edwards yeah, as yeah. well. It's, it's um, again, I, I think the sum is greater than its parts. I don't know the ins and outs of how they work, but what I do know is in the history of um, uh, what would his whatever his role is, I don't even know what his official title is. He's like yeah. uh, he's like the hitman. But whatever his <laughs> whatever his whatever his title is at Liverpool, I think in the history of acquisitions, there haven't been many better. Yeah, there absolutely have not been many better. And I'm not just talking at the top end where you go and get. Virgil van Dijk and what Virgil van Dijk then does, I turn around and say, you know, players like Andrew Robertson have been, you know, truly remarkable. Genie Wijnaldum, we signed from another team that got relegated and eyebrows were raised with Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah because yeah. Salah was seen as a flop at Chelsea. Um, yeah. £35 million for a flop when you're in need of a striker. That Those guys know exactly what they're doing. So, again, Michael Edwards, like I said, needs to be in that combo. Spot on, mate. And again, Michael Edwards and you know Peter Moore as well. He's in there as well. And they're, they're, those yeah. those guys are the reason why we are where we are. And we've had a we've had an incredible you know a year and a half. You know, winning a six European Cup, Super Cup, Club World Cup. But obviously, the team delivered the one we were all hoping and praying for all the time, mate. So I want to find out from you now your feeling when you saw Jordan Henderson walking up that platform on the cop towards that trophy and lifting it. What was where was you for a start? Where was you watching it, and how did you feel? So, so I'm going to go back a little bit, if if I may, because the uh, you know we effectively all Byron is singing had the league one at the turn of the year, um, and then the pandemic came, and you know you're having to put up with stick from people. They're going to cancel the season. You're not going to win it. Ah, yeah. the first season you should have win it. That anyway. But the best for me, I. At the start of the year, I knew I was going to be celebrating my 50th birthday. And, you know, I had an idea of how the day was going to be. I, I planned to be in Ibiza on my birthday because it fell on a Thursday. And that, anyway, as time's gone on, that's gone out the window. But yeah. it so happened, as fate would have it, that the 25th of June, 
2020, the day I turned 50, was the day that Chelsea beat Manchester oh. City. Wow. Wow, it was. As soon as you mentioned that date, I thought, is that his birthday? He's going to say it's his birthday. Yeah. Bloody hell, mate. That's that awesome. My birthday. The day I turned 50 was the day we turned, the day we won the league. And, you know. Can't write it. Just it's another, it's another movie moment. Happy birthday, mate! There you go. Unwrap yeah. that. Jesus. Thanks, thanks for that. So it will be, it will be a day and a, an anniversary that I will never ever forget, um, and one that I, I think for everybody involved at that club. Um, and you mentioned Jordan Henderson, what he's overcome as a player, how he's dug in, how he's got better, how he's maintained his levels. It was fitting that someone like him lifted the cup. And the only thing other than Jordan Henderson seeing lift that trophy would have been for me to see Steven Gerrard lift that trophy. And if it couldn't have been Steven, then it'd have to be Jordan for, for different reasons. But they both absolutely deserve to be Premier League champions with Liverpool Football Club. Very, very well said, mate. And we echo that as well. Don't I mean, Mick, you've, you spoke so highly of Jordan Henderson over the last couple of months. Um, it's there's the, the no words really, is he? So under underappreciated by rival fans, but we know what he brings to this side. Yeah, I think like the whole stuff, like it's mad to think that there's so many like fairy tale moments, and it's all they're all associated with Liverpool football club. Like touching the Istanbul, there's there's Henderson lifting the tro the trophy. There's so many moments where you think just coming back from the dead and like like the whole signing it was like 2012 wasn't it he came and he nearly went to Fulham Clint, we nearly got Clint Dempsey coming back getting given the captaincy trying to fill Stephen Gerrard's boots which was an impossible task anyway no one could, and Will Football have done it he'd, he'd done his best and now to see him lift the trophy was just after especially after me and you Jake like giving him a lot of applause over the years for all the uns, unsung and all the dirty work he'd done in the, in, especially on the, on the pitch and especially the good work he does off the pitch as well to finally see him start getting that recognition from even rival fans as well I think they're starting to realise now what he provides even for when he plays for England there's people who are starting to see the work that he does and it is a shame it's took this long now I think he's 30 now he's, start, he's only starting to get that recognition that he deserved a couple of years previously but seeing him lift that trophy was it, it was emotional, and especially with the year before when he got to lift the um, the Champions League as well, when he, he shared that moment with his dad, which was yeah. a great, a, a great yeah. moment. Absolutely, you mate. Know, you know, the thing, the thing with Jordan Henderson, I just, you know, and I hope he doesn't see this because he might think, what on earth is he talking about? But I hope I, he does see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, for you. When, 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 you look at, when you look at the the Champions League final of 05 and the unbelievable performance of Steven Gerrard and playing in three positions and, you know, scoring the goal and the penalty and, the, you know, the way that when he turned round and went to everyone like that, come on and yeah. we can still do it. But no one, it does get mentioned, but not enough, the importance of Didi Haman and yeah. him coming on and how we effectively changed the game. And when I look at our bad performances and the bad performances we've, and there haven't been many over the last three years mm. most of the time it's when Jordan's not in the team and yeah. it's as though when you look at a beautiful building and how it's structured a brick building we never ever talk about the importance of the cement bonding the bricks together and he is like he is like our cement in that team and it doesn't never get the credit we never talk about it in the sense of the beauty and the aesthetics but without him and this isn't being disparaging to the other players, it just seems to be that do we have that that that, that bond all the way through the team, from yeah. the back to the front. And I say that in the most complimentary terms possible. Um, in many ways, uh, remember Brendan Rodgers said that quite famously when he got sent off in, in that game against Man City, yeah. that he, he thought, right, we've got a problem because we've got no one else in the team that can do that and this wasn't a manager making excuses he absolutely knew yeah what Jordan Henderson was doing for us at that time and you know that was one of the first times that you actually heard someone come out and speak of Jordan Henderson in such glowing terms and everyone went what's he talking about you know we mm. got you know we got Coutinho we got we got Gerard. you know there's, there's nothing to do with Jordan Henderson you know Sterling and Suarez 
it was all to do with Jordan Henderson. Yeah, absolutely spot on, mate. And uh, I'm so we're all so pleased from that. He's got those winners' medals now, and he's got a, he's got one to go down as one of the greatest captains we've ever had. Yeah. Um, Spina, I just want to move on to y- yourself now, if that's okay. We mentioned yeah. earlier that um, you know UK Garage was a big part of your early career, and obviously it still is today. It's still in your heart and. When we spoke to Harvey uh, from So Solid Crew, and I know you know you guys know each other, he told us how important that period was for the scene. I suppose you feel the same way about that. Yeah, I mean it was it was phenomenal. Um, the turn of the the turn of the year, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, we joined Radio One. Um, two thousand and one, twenty one seconds came out, but we'd obviously been doing our stuff for a few years beforehand, and it just culminated in in getting to that into that place. You know, two thousand one. A great year, travelling up the M4, winning the FA Cup in such fashion <laughs> against Arsenal. Um, yeah. But again, that was really nice. You know, I went to um, I went to Germany for the the Europa League, which is UEFA Cup you final, got final against Alaves. I was there for that game as well. I went to the uh, the League Cup final as well that year. So I, I did a, a fair amount of travelling, but it was a great year. But it still wasn't it still wasn't the Premier League. But it did keep the walls from the door for um, for, for a little while. Um, but yeah, th- th- those were phenomenal times, and being able to—I'm really lucky that I get to work in music and football, and have turned my hobbies into my career. I, I know that I'm so so lucky, um, and 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 every day I wake up, I realise how how lucky and fortunate I am. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's everyone's dream is to combine their career with their passion, and I'm sure it. You know, me and Mick would love for this to, to take off well where we can leave our normal jobs and crack on and do this all the time. It'd be a, be a joy to do that, wouldn't it, Mick? <laughs> that is the dream. That is literally the dream. Like, if I could just sit in my room and just do Zoom meetings about talking about the footy all day <laughs> in, in pyjamas, I'm happy with that. But, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Spoon, like you said, you've, you know, you're combining the, the passion with the footy now. I mean, you're part of the, a Premier League TV, which obviously is, is global and it's massive. How's that going? Yeah, it's going really well. I, I was trying to work it out. I think I'm in my seventh year with them now. Yeah. Um, again, you know, I did seven years on Five Live, um, which was really cool because that came about because the you know the boss of Five Live at the time heard me speaking about uh, about football on Radio One, and then said, you know, you're into your football, and then we met, um, and Bob and Bob took me over to Five Live, and there's you know actually in, in a funny way, there's a lot of people that don't know me as a disc jockey. They think the DJ yeah. Spoonie stands that actually stands for David Jones or something like that. <laughs> because they, they associate me with football before they yeah. do music. So again, I've been really lucky that I had, you know, such a great great run on a you know a leading news and sports station and have then taken the baton and, and, and joined the Premier League where I get to, you know, watch all the games and talk about talk about my team. And everyone knows I'm a Liverpool fan, so Yeah. You know, fans fans like to see other fans. I'm not a commentator. I'm not being biased in my views and opinions. But I'm a football fan. That's largely why, largely why I'm here. A little bit of broadcasting, but mainly mainly the fan stuff. That's it, mate. And you know, and congratulations for that as well, because it's it's sort of living that dream. Do you know what I mean? And I think I think everybody can look up to someone like yourself doing that. Where you think, well, if if that person can do it, then surely I can do it as well. You know. Yeah. Um. So it, it's really good for that. But you know. Going back to the roots that you've just said about being a DJ, because that is obviously the the thing that got you started with your career. I mean, this this you've had such great success uh, being having residencies everywhere and you know in, in different parts of the world. But how are you getting on in terms of like what the restrictions of the pandemic? Because we we spoke to um, to Dan from the Wombats um, uh, yesterday, and he was he was chatting about how difficult it is for musicians and this thing. Has it been the same for you? Obviously, restrictions in terms of what you can do and I'm sure you've got some dates lined up next year, haven't you? Yeah, it's been it's been really it's been really difficult for all of us, and I don't want to sit here sounding ungrateful about the career that I've had to date. But to be totally like disregarded and overlooked, um, and I don't mean me, I, I mean our, our whole industry. industry whether, you're, yeah. whether you're someone who owns a club, whether you're someone who works in a club, whether you plan festivals, whether you're a performer, a musician, or a DJ like myself. For there to have been no regard for what happens to an industry that provides something like three billion, between three and five billion pounds every yeah. year to the economy, 
there it's it, it is a crying shame i'm fortunate from a financial position that i have another revenue stream which isn't reliant on me djing but that doesn't mean that i don't feel it i have i have friends that i've been professional and personally associated with for over 20 years that i see struggling now because you know their career has just been ripped out of them nine months i mean give or take nine months who can who can just not work for that period of time yeah. um and we don't know we don't know where it's going to end we don't know there's no hope over the horizon yet all we have is each other i've got a few events that i'm trying to you know do where we're kind of combining the old dinner and dance scene where we we have food and we play a little bit of music but people aren't allowed to, to yeah. dance and sing i mean what kind of world are we living in how dystopian if we if we can't even dance and sing i mean what what day what time is this if there's ever been a time to sing and dance it should be now we we, mm. we should be packing up our troubles in our own kit bag even even times of great war they have they, they, they partied and had songs to commemorate to lift spirits we don't yeah. have that at the moment and it is you know it is a dark time and whether you are in a band or a dj a large part of our profession is to bring joy we, you know people look forward to the weekends where they can go and hug and kiss their friends that they've not seen for a while and dance and sing and ironically that is what we need more of now not yeah. less of that's the truth and yes there are health considerations but we have those we we need to have those just like you did with hairdressers and people going on the tube but just turn around and saying nobody can go out to a club yeah I, it, it, it's ridiculous we've got to find better ways i think a government and governments uh, and i don't say this in in uh with a, a color attached to the government whether it be red or blue but people in positions of power to make decisions have got to be they've got to be much better in their thinking and their process especially considering the resources that they have available to them yeah very well said mate and i hope if, if anybody has seen this uh, regarding that fact i hope they're paying attention to me because those words were powerful and listen i want to say uh, just one thing in terms of music obviously liverpool's anthem is uh, you'll never walk alone and uh, i like my rugby league i'm a wigan warriors fan um and in the 2015 grand final mate you have the balls whilst dj on your set to play you'll never walk alone at old trafford and if people haven't seen that i'm going to put the video in the in this now and just watch it <laughs> And yeah, Spoonie, tell us all about that. I mean, did you know you were going to do that? You know, the, the thing is, is that obviously I knew I was going to be at Old Trafford. It wasn't the first time that I've been there. I actually went to um, the game, I'm trying to think of the year. It might have been, was it 2014, 2015, when we won 3-1, when uh, Suarez got one, Stevie got two from the penalty spot uh, and he missed yeah. and he missed one. I can't remember the year. Thirteen fourteen, mate. Thirteen fourteen, right. Yeah. Suarez was Suarez was unbelievable. Raheem Sterling was like when I watched I remember Sterling's because Brendan Rogers played him in a slightly different position and he was unreal in that game. If you watch that game back, they could not they did not know what to do with Raheem Sterling in that game. Um and I I was in the wrong end and I got ejected They, because I, I went, oh, Daniel Sturridge had a chance and he, and he missed it anyway. <laughs> but when I, um, <laughs> when, when, when I look back and I think to myself, right, I'm at Old Trafford, I'm now DJing, how good would this be? And I was like, don't do it, don't do it, you can't do it. And next thing I found myself just doing it because I said to him, you know what, this will be the ultimate football banter to play you'll never walk alone at old trafford and uh you know since then um what what was what was interesting though is that the leeds rhino fans were, where i was positioned the leeds rhino fans were were right next to me and obviously yeah. leeds and manchester united they also have their own rivalry so they started singing you'll never walk alone almost as though the enemy of my enemy is my friend so <laughs> they, they they started singing along and then obviously there's 
other rugby league teams in and around uh, yeah. Liverpool that started singing along. Obviously, the Manchester they were booing, but it, it, even as a bit of pantomime, it was it was really funny. And then I started to obviously you get a little bit of stick. Oh, I can't believe you've done that. And I, I remember just start saying to a couple of uh, Man United fans on Twitter, saying, "Let me just ask you a question and and be honest with your answer. If you had the opportunity to play." Glory, glory, Man United at Anfield. Would you or would you not do it? And they just went, no, you're right, I would have. And I said, yeah. this is it. You know, I just got to put our flag in your ground before you did mine. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, 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 and it's, it's funny because I'm very good friends with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's son, Jason, his eldest son. And yeah. um, oh, it's not his eldest son, actually, it's, but it's the middle one. But Jason, uh, obviously, it's filtered back and it's kind of, gone around and viral and Jason called me and he said, you know, I cannot believe you've done that, but fair play. He said, Dad, he said, Dad had a chuckle because he thought it was quite funny. And you just go, listen, as football fans, we're always trying to get one over on each other. And it yeah. wasn't disrespectful, you know, it's not like I was going and smashing up seats or scrolling mm. over paintings or statues or any like I'm so respectful to the game of football and the history. Yeah. And you know, Manchester United absolutely deserve the respect once we take our Liverpool colours off for what they've achieved as a football club. Mm. Rivalries aside, we have to give them their respect. But that was never gonna stop me playing your never walk alone it was absolutely brilliant mate honestly it was so good and you could see on the screen your face you're just like yeah i know what i'm doing here and it was, oh, mate, it was absolutely brilliant it was um, I, yeah i've not been invited back to play <laughs> just about to say mate you've not been back since <laughs> uh mick this is obviously you always ask the last question and it's always the same question to every guest. I don't, we've not told you about this one, Spoonie, because okay. it's an on the it's an on the spot one, obviously. Go for it, Mick. Yeah, we, we finish with um if you could pick your all time Liverpool five aside team, who would you go with? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Mick, you're wrong and okay. <laughs> so I I think I can't go beyond Dalglish, Barnes, Gerrard. I might not even put a goalkeeper because the five players are going to go for won't even need a goalkeeper. We might play <laughs> rush goalie or they might just have to rotate. Um, I'm, I'm going to go those three. I'm going to put... I'm going to put Graeme Souness in there as well because I think he was the complete footballer um, left foot, right foot, box to box, head, tackle, pass. He, he had everything. So, Gerard Souness, Dalglish, Barnes, and. <sighs> wow. It's tough, isn't it? 11. So you, could do, you could do an yeah. 11, but yeah, mix I mean, it I've gone get for, with I've, this bad one. I've gone all attacking players, so I'm going to put. I'm going to put Virgil van Dijk in there. Shout out, mate. I'm going to put Virgil in there because I think that he will be commanding. He won't have to go and go. He can stay at the back and do what he does on the 11 aside. Then he can score the goal. And I just think that we need to have at least one player from the current squad in that team. And I think he was yeah. he was the piece to the puzzle um, that made the puzzle complete. And that doesn't mean that he's more important than any other piece in the puzzle. But I think him signing, albeit he came before Alisson, was the that was the that was the galvanized galvanizing piece. Yeah, absolutely spot on, mate. Mick, you happy with that five aside? You'll take that one, won't you? They would Let rain. Them. They would Let rain the, the world and Europe for like thirty years. It doesn't even not matter how old they are. Jesus Christ. Just put Van Dyke in front of the goal. <laughs> no one's getting past them with them other four players. Jesus Christ! And it's always a hard question though, because we've asked loads of play, like loads of ex players. It's like um, Sander Westerveld and stuff like that. And I always make sure to, I say it clearly, like five aside. I'm sure Sander Westerveld went and named like a full eleven. I was like, Sander, what are you doing? <laughs> he asked for five. He did, yeah, he did. But it's, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because Bolo's ending had picked like the likes of Philip Koku and, and stuff like that. Because we did it for when we done the players who you've played with and stuff like that. And um, Eric Meyer, obviously, do you remember, you remember Eric yeah, Meyer? Yeah. Um, he, he put um, Ronaldo in, you know, the original Ronaldo. Because yeah. yeah. he played with him at PSV. We're just like, oh, of course, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Sean Dundee, even Sean Dundee's five-a-side team was brilliant. 
yeah. you know, it was, uh, it was some good ones, mate. But yeah, it'll be a be tough to beat that one, though, Spoonie, definitely. Yeah, you're not going to get the ball off Sooness for certain. No. You're not getting the ball off between him and Van Dijk. You ain't winning any tackles. And then Stephen could score from anywhere. Same with Dalglish. And again, when Barnsley's got the ball, he can, well, he did it against Brazil. He can definitely do it on the five side pitch. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, well, we'll have to get Barnsley on at some point, Mick, won't we? And I'll have to ask him the same question as well. So we never know. <laughs> the legend, the, <laughs> but, but Spoonie, listen, mate, we, we could talk, I could sit in talk for hours. Putty with you in your career, mate. We just want to thank you very much for coming on. And uh, thanks for obviously, mate, you've you've shared your Liverpool journey with us, but we'd love to have you back just to just to talk. You know, the, the upcoming matches wherever you're free, yeah. mate. We'd love yeah, to whenever. have you back on. Let me know, mate. We'd, we'd appreciate it. And uh, thanks, thanks everybody guys. for what. Thanks everybody for watching. Uh, give us a like, uh, subscribe to the channel. Let us know in the comments uh, how well Spoonie did and how much you want him back on the show. And uh, Mick, say the line, mate. We'll see you next time. Podcast Network.